Welcome to this podcast today. I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding owner of Next Element Consulting, and I'm joined here with Bill Eddy of the High Conflict Institute. We're very excited to have this conversation today around the current political situation, our presidential election, conflict, and leadership. I'd like to introduce who's here with me on the line. Uh, Bill Eddy is a lawyer, therapist, mediator, and the president of High Conflict Institute. He's an international expert on managing high-conflict personalities and disputes. He's taught courses at the University of San Diego School of Law, the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at the Pepperdine University School of Law, and the National Judicial College. He's an author of 10 books and numerous articles, and he's a new friend of mine. I am very excited to be here with uh, Bill, who I met through a course that I taught at Pepperdine and have enjoyed some of his books. Uh, Bill's latest book, Trump Bubbles, explores the behaviors, dynamics, and psychology of high-conflict politicians. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much, Nate. I'm really glad to be doing this with you. And in fact, the next thing is I should introduce a little more about who you are. So, Dr. Nate Regeer is the co-founding owner and chief executive officer of Next Element, a global advisory firm specializing in building cultures of compassionate accountability. A former practicing psychologist, Regeer is an expert in social-emotional intelligence and leadership, positive conflict, and interpersonal leadership communication. An international advisor, he's a certified leading-out-of-drama master trainer, process communication model certifying master trainer, and co-developer of Next Elements Leading Out of Drama Training and Coaching. Nate has published two books, Beyond Drama, and his latest work, Conflict Without Casualties, which is a field guide for leading with compassionate accountability. And I found just very fascinating in terms of breaking it down into steps of really understanding what to avoid and what to do. But I also want to add that there's a little more interesting background for Nate. He grew up as the son of missionary parents in Botswana and Zaire, also spent time in South Africa. Having grown up amidst political unrest, poverty, and apartheid helped form his global perspective and his desire to serve others and help with their conflict behavior. So I'm very excited to... Uh, do this with Nate, and as he said, we, we met, uh, I think, two, three years ago, talking about uh, courses at uh, Pepperdine, and we really have similar thinking in some ways, but coming from different emphases. Uh, he's in the middle of the country, I'm on the West Coast, and he focuses a lot on leadership, and I focus a lot on high-conflict personalities in many settings, including leadership. So I'll toss this back to you, Nate. Thank you, Bill. Is there anything that you would care, any additional things you'd care to share about your passion around the area of conflict and why you wrote your most recent book, Trump Bubbles? Well, I should say that I really got into the high conflict field from starting out really as a therapist in the 1980s doing child and family therapy and liking conflict resolution, liking mediation. So I ended up deciding to go to law school primarily so I could do work mediating legal disputes out of court as much as possible. 
of course, while I was in law school, I realized I was enjoying and fascinated by the legal process and that I would practice law for a couple of years before focusing just on mediation. I ended up practicing family law for 15 years in court and realized what drives a lot of the high conflict cases was high conflict personalities and mental health issues that no one else recognized. So I've kind of become an educator over the last dozen years in teaching professionals, but also ordinary people about the patterns of high conflict personalities. But then out of the blue, kind of knocking our our, our usual uh, sense of centeredness in terms of politics, uh, came along Donald Trump. And actually, I wrote a book uh, at the last election, 2012, with another psychologist friend of mine called Splitting America. And we were predicting and concerned that the political tone was driving uh, the country farther and farther apart. So when Trump came along, I felt it was really important to educate people about the risks of a high-conflict personality. I wrote the book in March, and I explained people with these kinds of personalities are like a bubble. It's going to burst. And just like the um, housing and stock market bubbles of 2008, everyone had a rational exuberance, excitement. This is going to just go on forever. And what's interesting with uh, Trump bubbles is that we're now seeing maybe the bubble bursting and people are surprised, partly wondered why did it take so long and others are going, how could this be? You know, this person really seems normal in so many ways. How could this be coming apart? So it's a pattern of behavior, and that's why I like we're going to talk about leadership and conflict, because I think there's lessons that can be applied to all situations in terms of how this personality affects leadership and affects conflict resolution. So that's my passion. Oh, fantastic. And wow, we sure have a lot to talk about. The, uh, the election is very, getting very interesting, and we certainly have no, uh, no absence of conflict as these two uh, as these two candidates are getting near to the election so your book is very timely thank you yeah. and you might explain a little bit about your book and the, your book also came out this year although it relates to work you've been doing um, for the last several years and I think it's interesting because you're talking about people who want to be leaders, people who want to do well, and teaching them the how to do it as compared to, I think, I focus more on the people that don't necessarily want to do well, they just want to do it their way. Yeah. So why don't you say a little bit about your book, Conflict Without Casualties, and what led you to write that uh, at this time? Yeah, this is this is my second book, and uh, the first one was called Beyond Drama, and it was an articulation of our understanding of how regular people get sideways with one another when we're in distress. The second book really comes together and shares some of the principles and strategies that we've been teaching our clients who, who like you said, do want to perform and they want to do well, and the issue of conflict seems to create a real problem. And so the main the main the main passion that we have in this book, Conflict Without Casualties, 
is to promote the idea that conflict doesn't have to be destructive and that the kind of drama that we think about that just sucks us dry and it's like an energy vampire um, that drama the problem there is not that there's conflict the problem is that we're misusing that energy of conflict and so conflict without casualties is a field guide for how do we steward the energy of conflict in creative and productive and healthy ways using what we call the principles of compassionate accountability and so moving in to now I'd, we're going to spend some time here Bill and I uh, interviewing each other about how our particular perspective and philosophy applies to um, our analysis of what's going on with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump leading up to this election why don't we start out then with with you, Nate, saying kind of what your core philosophy is of leadership and conflict, and then I've got some questions for you uh, based on your book and the current election. So what's your core philosophy? What What's the essence of what you do teach and want people to know? Thank you. One of the mantras that I've heard, and I didn't invent this one, but I like it a lot, is that great leaders solve problems without creating new ones. How often do we see people going about trying to solve problems, but the way in which they do it or the motives with which they go about it actually creates more problems than they're really solving. And so um, my core philosophy of leadership is that leaders have the ability to bring people that are different together around a common goal and uh, be able to not only motivate and connect with them according to their individual differences, but also be able to leverage healthy conflict to close the gap between where we are and where we want to be. Great. And I think now's a good time, actually, to start talking about your book, and then I'll say some of my philosophy before you ask me about mine. Uh, but I think you were going to set the stage with looking at some of the differences in our two approaches. Yeah. You know, as... as as I've gotten to know Bill better and as we've talked about uh, read each other's books one of the things that uh, obviously where we're similar is we're very interested in how conflict plays out in leadership um, have you ever experienced this this 80-20 rule where about 20 percent of the people and relationships in your life account for about 80 percent of the stress <laughs> um, I know that's true for me and it seems like if we can get a handle on just a a, a small percentage of our relationships we can make a big difference in our energy um, I think with with where Bill tends to focus is like he said on um, where you're focusing Bill is on on this a very small subset of the population of high conflict personalities that may not really want to change they simply want to pursue their agendas and uh, promote a lot of conflict and it's more about how we understand and relate to them in order to stay healthy and maintain our our boundaries that's so important for me the work that we do at next element is about probably the other 80 percent of the population that are that are generally fairly healthy and they go in and out of drama but they do want to work together and they can engage in conflict with some training um, and achieve some good outcomes where the they don't really want to hurt each other and and so they're willing to work on some stuff Great. And I, I do really think that's a good description of our emphasis, because I think we have a lot of similar approaches, but we're dealing with, with quite different populations. So let me, let me move on then to start and ask you some questions about your book and how you would apply this, um, if you're ready for that. Yeah, I'd love to. 
Okay, great. In, in your book, you say the following, and I want to read a quote that I like. Everyone loves stage drama that entertains and excites. Unexpected plot twists, heroes and heroines, bad guys and good guys. Alternatively, there's interpersonal drama that hollows out your stomach, makes you want to scream, and sucks the life out of you. Easy to sense and difficult to get a handle on. Interpersonal drama is one of the most costly drains on relationships and productivity. So, Nate, why is drama such a major problem in the workplace, and why must leaders lead out of drama? Why, why is this so important? It's a great question. Um, a, a recent study by the Gallup organization found that it, just in the U.S. economy alone, uh, we spend about $359 billion a year on drama. And the way that they measured that was they tried to quantify um, how much energy is spent and time is spent each day uh, d distracted, gossiping, uh, calling in sick, avoiding people, putting off decisions, uh, meetings where nothing gets done. And they put that all together and discovered it's unbelievably costly. So it's, it's, not, it's not just the pit in our stomachs. It's expensive in terms of time and energy, and it distracts us from our best laid plans and goals. So leaders that are able to see that coming and redirect that energy into what we call compassionate accountability are able to make tremendous improvements in, in uh, workplace morale, uh, how much work gets done, and, and how, in, how much people enjoy being at work. Makes a lot of sense. In a sense, I think what you're saying is that the workplace, the interpersonal, is a place where we don't want this drama. And that, on the other hand, we're very um, interested in other people's drama. So let <laughs> yeah. me ask you a second question. Nate, your book focuses on the distinction between drama and compassionate accountability. Will you explain the difference and share how you see these concepts playing out in our election? Absolutely. And uh, to, to, to look at that distinction, the first thing I'd like to emphasize is that conflict, no matter what kind of conflict, involves a struggle. We are expending energy to try to accomplish something. The question is, how are we using that energy? Drama is a process of where we struggle against each other in an adversarial way in order to feel justified or to be able to say, see, I was right. Um, so the end goal is not really to be effective. The end goal is to feel justified. Alternatively, the word compassion, if you look at the Latin root of the word, it means to struggle with or to suffer with. Calm means alongside or with, and passion means to suffer. And so the notion of compassion is means to struggle with. And so if you look at the two, drama is to struggle against, compassion is to struggle with. What's common among the two is how we struggle. And so in compassion, the struggle is, the purpose of the struggle is to be effective and accomplish goals. Where I see this playing out in the election is whenever either candidate is spending energy um, undermining the other one or trying to show how much worse the other one is or trying to do kind of character assassination on the other one, the end goal is clearly to feel justified, that see, I'm better, you're worse. And so I'm seeing a lot of energy being spent on drama when that's happening. However, when the candidates are spending energy 
articulating issues, talking about how they're going to engage other parties to solve problems, or looking at how they're going to struggle in a productive way with our allies, with, um, with the other party across the aisle, or even with their constituency, that is where I see energy being spent in compassionate accountability. Excellent. And it just sounds really like the way to go that makes people happy. Um, because people aren't happy with those surprises and pit in the stomach. So, Nate, let me ask, how can either candidate practice compassionate accountability now after this highly dramatic election is over? Do you think that either candidate will do so? Or are they capable of doing so? Especially after they both had such difficulty at the second debate saying something positive about each other. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a very difficult escalating spiral that we're seeing where more and more airtime air and more and more breath is being spent on drama now instead of uh, compassion. Where it shortchanges the general public is that we're getting less and less um, education about the issues, about the things that we need to be deciding on, and more and more um, polarization. Because one of the things that happens is whenever there's drama, it invites people to pick camps because it invites people to say you're with me or you're against me. See, I told you so. No, you were wrong. And my concern is that we're actually getting further away from being able to make an informed choice on um, election day. After the election, the struggle is how do we get back to dealing with real problems after we've worked so hard to alienate the other um, candidate? And um, I'm, I'm actually fairly concerned that regardless of who gets elected, the drama will continue if we don't start um, paying attention to that. And I, I, I share that concern. I think that's a very good point. Um, I, I think of this kind of as a speed bump, that the election day is just a, a little bump in the, in the road of this national conflict. So thank you for that, Nate. I think yeah. that's it's really um, encouraging to see what you're saying in – the work world and how you're helping people learn to get along, to uh, lead in a positive direction, setting a positive tone, and yet quite concerning to see the alternative. Yeah, I, I am concerned. And it's, it, you know, drama invites drama. So it's very difficult if either candidate comes in, you know, to a debate with their heart set on, I'm going to really focus on the issues, and then they get sucked in. To defending themselves or get sucked into counterattacks and kind of lose focus but yet at the same time when there's drama around it's very difficult to resist it because you feel I feel like I have to defend myself or I have to you know I'll see your 10 and raise it five um, and so <laughs> so we kind of yeah. have a very volatile situation uh, going on here um, I'd like to switch the focus a little bit and ask if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your core philosophy of leadership in conflict, and maybe I could ask you a couple questions about how you view this election. That would be great, because I'm, I'm excited to talk about this, and especially to discuss it with you from the leadership and conflict perspectives. So, so the, the core philosophy of leadership and conflict that I focus on is really the high conflict. And what I find is high-conflict situations tend to have one or more 
high-conflict personalities. And I look a lot at the issue of personality because I started out as a mental health professional and was trained in diagnosing personality disorders and also treating uh, personality disorders as well as depression, anxiety, substance abuse. I guess that's another thing we have in common, Bill. We both are clinicians by training. You know, you're right about that. You're a psychologist and I'm a clinical social worker. And I really think this is so helpful in how to deal with these conflict situations, which aren't defined as a mental health problem at all. But mental health tools really, I think, help. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that's a good point. So what I see, my my basic philosophy is that people with high conflict personalities tend to have four main characteristics. A lot of all or nothing thinking, uh, unmanaged emotions so that when they're emotionally upset they're totally preoccupied with those emotions. Um, Extreme behaviors or threats of extreme behavior and a preoccupation with blaming others. These are the primary characteristics of a high-conflict personality, and it's a narrow range of behavior that they repeat and repeat and repeat. Now, some people may also have a personality disorder while others don't. When we're talking about Trump and Clinton and politicians today, I'm not going to talk about diagnosing them because you know, for both of us, we're not allowed to diagnose uh, mental health disorders in people we've never met. But that doesn't matter. I think what we can talk about is patterns, and especially this high-conflict pattern. Whether someone has a personality disorder or not, the high-conflict pattern tends to maintain or increase conflict. And so a lot of my work is in the legal setting and looking at how to get high conflict disputes really moved out of court rather than stuck repeating and just escalating. Yeah. And and also in the workplace. So I have been doing workplace consulting, training human resource managers, employee assistance professionals and others. So the idea that high conflict personalities, like you said, take 80% of the time um, is, to me, uh, realizing it isn't just a process or teaching somebody. It's dealing with people that don't want to be taught. Right. People with this type of approach don't look at themselves, which means they've got a lot of extra energy to point the finger at everybody else. I appreciate you bringing up that distinction because... A lot of the a lot of the commentary now on the news and in the media is saying, you know, should we pick a candidate based on their moral character or should we pick the candidate based on their effectiveness and ability to get things done? And it's a very interesting distinction. Uh, it sounds like you're suggesting maybe there's another thing we should be paying attention to, which is how they spend their energy. And uh, in your book, you say that uh, in your book, Trump Bubbles, you say that most people respond to a conflict with efforts to solve the problem. But high-conflict people respond with, with ac- actions and behaviors that actually grow the problem. How do you see this playing out with our two candidates? Well, it's just totally fascinating. It's like a case study in many ways. So let me talk about each of them a little bit. And in terms of if 
one of them is a high conflict person, then it's predictive of what they're going to be like later on. They have a narrow range of behavior and they're going to keep repeating it. So let's start with looking at Trump, Donald J. Trump. Uh, he, he announced his candidacy last summer, so that's over a year ago, about 15 months ago, and started with blaming others. Uh, he talked particularly about uh, Mexicans building a wall, um, spoke in terms of extreme behaviors or threats, building a wall across the whole border of the United States with Mexico is an extreme measure that's never been proposed before. There's been a fence and there's been discussion of, you know, how high or where that should be. And the border has been an issue uh, pretty much for about 50 years. Uh, before that, it's interesting that um, a lot of farmers in the United States would hire routinely Mexicans to uh, come and help pick the crops, and there'd be this movement back and forth across the border. So today, talking about building a large, beautiful wall is a pretty extreme measure. Uh, we see the all-or-nothing thinking, not just about Mexicans as a group, but also Muslims as a group. Uh, and talking about other people in all good terms or all bad terms. And one thing people notice, uh, there's, there's a lot of use of the word hyperbole, that uh, Trump speaks with hyperbole, that it's exaggerated speech. Um, but it's really all or nothing speech. And so someone he got along with fine, who came to his wedding, was a friend of his, was Hillary Clinton. Now... She's basically got hate in her heart, and she's evil, she's the devil, she's got this huge controlling empire. Uh, so we're seeing all of those um, characteristics that I described. The emotions, uh, unmanaged emotions, has been demonstrated where, as some of the uh, reporters and even uh, Republicans supporting him say, as he goes down the rabbit the rabbit hole, he gets easily distracted. So Elizabeth Warren and he got in a four-hour uh, Twitter war uh, several months ago. Hmm. Uh, he spent a week uh, arguing with the parents of uh, a dead soldier, the Gold Star parents after the Democratic Convention. Then he spent a week complaining about a Miss Universe who was who gained weight. And so he gets emotionally distracted. He can't let go. But one of the most important things for people to see about this pattern that made me really write the book is it's a narrow pattern of behavior that doesn't change. So when I wrote the book in March, there was talk that Trump was going to pivot in April and start looking presidential and that there was concern that he would fool everyone that he could be presidential and that, that he would create this kind of uh, good-looking character that would be a mask for what he had done the last uh, six or eight months. But in fact, as everyone knows now, he never pivoted and I've always suggested he can't pivot if he has a high conflict personality. So that's, that's Trump. Can I Let's ask talk. you one, uh, one uh, follow-up question to that? Sure. 
the other day I saw that uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. is is promoting very strongly this notion that Trump is a changed man, and my guess is he's talking about moral or ethical standards uh, with with the uh, news about various sexual misconduct and things. Um, it sounds like, from what you're saying, high conflict personalities really don't change. Right, and and so it's a it's it's a confusing thing for the public, and this is one of the biggest parts. Uh, I have to educate people about dealing in their families. People ask me about their family members. They say, my, my family member is doing this and this. Why are they doing that? How can I make them see what they're doing? How can I make them change? And I tell them, mostly you've got to forget about changing them and look at how to manage your relationship with them. So, yes, this is one of the things. And, and people just don't get that. And I would, I would propose that the, part of the problem is a lot of our media and entertainment um, and fictional characters start out being really obnoxious and difficult, and then they change. I, I call it um, the Jack Nicholson syndrome. If you've ever seen Jack Nicholson in the last 20 years, the movies he's in are these kind of romantic comedies where he starts out as a really grumpy curmudgeon and it's just difficult, rotten, rotten to women. He dates people and it just goes terrible. And then in the middle of the movie, he starts to change. And by the end of the movie, you really kind of love him. And even though he's still a little bit rough edges, he's become lovable and friendly. And I think people, people believe that about uh, people with high conflict personalities that they're going to change and become lovable at some point and and I hate to say it but I think the most disappointed people are going to be his followers hmm. because he's not going to become suddenly an effective person he's going to always be blaming and complaining if he becomes president he'll spend most of his time putting out tweets about how everybody else has screwed up that's my concern well what about Clinton well, Clinton is, it's interesting because we probably have more information about Hillary Clinton than any other candidate because she's been in the public scene, um, actually starting in Arkansas uh, for over 30 years. But in the presidential national field, really going back to the 92 elections with uh, Bill Clinton, uh, it's interesting because if we look at this, all-or-nothing thinking. Let's start with that one. She doesn't really seem to be taking all-or-nothing uh, positions or approach to people. In fact, what's interesting is she's kind of the, the researcher. She's kind of the person that wants to listen and hear different points of view and then make up her mind. She has changed her positions on some issues, and in this election, uh, she started out pretty much in the center and then has shifted leftward somewhat uh, because of the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. And so she's adopted some of his uh, principles, if not positions, like on uh, college education, trying to have that be debt-free, uh, being against the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership 
portrayed, where she before was for it. People aren't sure. So she's not an absolute all or nothing kind of person. Um, emotions, uh, unmanaged emotions, that's not, that's not Hillary Clinton. She's probably over-controlled with her emotions, which reinforces to people that she's not warm, that she's not even really trustworthy. It's mm -hmm. like she's kind of hurting herself by not being <laughs> more emotional. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of extreme behavior or threats, uh, she's pretty much the other way. I think she's cautious and she's refined. She seems to have policy decisions, positions that she develops over time. But the biggest, yeah. preoccupied with blaming others. She just doesn't seem to be that kind of person. Uh, in, the, in the election, of course, right now, she's blaming Trump for being unfit to be president. But she doesn't seem to have a pattern of blaming people uh, in the same way that he does. Now, in... And so overall, I don't see her being a high-conflict uh, person. But I want to add something here that's interesting to me, and that is I read an article recently uh, about how women lead, especially in politics. And one of the things this article said, it mentioned a study, and I don't have the study, but the names of the authors were Peter Kuhn, K-U-H-N, and Marie Claire uh, Villaval, V-I-L-L-E-V-A-L. -L -E and one of the things they said that fits, I think, and this was a study released in 2013, said that men tend to have greater confidence in their own abilities and that women tend to be more optimistic about their teammates' abilities. And I would suggest that's similar to Trump, who says only I can fix it, and Hillary, who does a lot of listening, tries to work across the aisle as a uh, senator, and is expected to work with many Republicans as well as yeah. Democrats after the election. So I think we're seeing a little bit of a gender uh, difference here. But I think in terms of high-conflict personalities, I see one with Trump, and I don't see one with Hillary. Thank you. Thank you. I want to leave some good time for us to get to some of the questions that, that our listeners sent in, some wonderful questions. But before we do that, Bill, if you could speak briefly about how has the media used or misused conflict in this election? What, what are the consequences? What are we, what are we receiving here? Well, I think one of the biggest issues may be partly human nature. The election has become about entertainment. And slowly over the last 20 years, and I think it has to do a lot with cable news and with the Internet, um, politics and entertainment have gotten confused. And so drama in entertainment is at the core of what's exciting. And so Trump knows how to feed the kind of entertainment drama. And so the media has just fallen right in with that. And Trump is out there every day, you know, with a tweet or a comment. And um, Clinton, for example, isn't. So Trump has gotten a lot more public publicity, even than all of the other primary candidates. Mm. And so what the media does is it, 
exaggerates the drama. It emphasizes the most extremes and hasn't said what's important is the issues here. So it's gone with the drama rather than leading away from the drama to the real issues. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I watch. I try to watch all of the cable news, all the main cable news channels, so I can see all the different perspectives. And regardless of which one I'm watching, there's always breaking news that is is really not breaking news. It's some exaggerated drama. It seems like. Exactly, um, and that's yeah. and that's a big problem, I think, because we're starting to become drama focused rather than problem solving focused. Real quick, a uh, couple comments on have we ever seen anything like this before in our history? Both both candidates seem to be resurrecting other presidents, past patterns. You know, maybe Clinton is or Bill Clinton's accused of acting like um, JFK, um, and Trump says he's like Reagan. And uh, has anything like this ever happened in our history? Well, I think we've had high conflict leaders, and especially, and you mentioned the media, especially since we've had modern media. Of course, it's not politically correct to compare any of this to uh, Hitler or Mussolini, but I think there actually are similarities in terms of them having high conflict personalities, and they're like a bubble. They've risen and then they've crashed. Uh, of course, with great tragedy with World War II with Hitler. But in the U.S., we had then McCarthyism in the 1950s. Again, a bubble of entertainment. TV, for the first time, really was broadcasting all of these uh, Senate hearings and such. And another bubble. Over a course of about five years, he rose from being seen as a dramatic leader, heroic figure, to disgrace. Uh, the Senate voted 99 to 1 to censure him by the end of his reign, and he died a disgraced alcoholic, uh, not in recovery. Well, and if then, you're not convinced, if, if, if you're skeptical like I was when I started reading your book, I was, I was fascinated by the parallels you drew and historical uh, information that you shared around some of these leaders. Uh, definitely worth the read of Trump Bubbles. Yeah, let me actually say, I don't need to go into all of them, but there's aspects of this with Lyndon Johnson and the Vietnam War, uh, George W. Bush with the Iraq War, and I would suggest Sarah Palin, who mm. rose, was popular, and then crashed. Even Roger Ailes, who was one of her biggest advocates, said she's an idiot. So there's this rise and fall pattern. And I think we have to watch for that and realize that people don't change if they have this pattern. Mm. Well, I got a question here from, uh, we, we got some wonderful questions. And thanks for everyone that registered to uh, get informed about when this podcast is live and for your questions. The f first one I'll read here, and I, I'd like, Bill, for you to comment on this. Uh, the question is, it's been suggested that support for Donald Trump can be used as a mental health disorder screening tool. Uh, do you agree? Uh, why or why not? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I really think there's a lot of people that support Trump, um, especially because he's the Republican candidate. There's a lot of uh, research and reporting that shows that people generally tend to support the candidate of the party that they've been a member of. So that the vast majority of people, I think, are supporting him because he's the Republican candidate, he's mm. the conservative candidate, 
um, and so he said things that they like. So I don't believe that followers of a high-conflict person necessarily have any mental health disorders. I think there's always some, and there's probably some that follow uh, Clinton as well. But the fact that you're following a narcissist is often more about how persuasive and seductive the narcissistic leader is than about whose the followers are. So I, I wouldn't say this is a, a mental okay. health uh, sign. Thank you. Um, but it is, it is concerning that people have been fooled by him, and I think eventually they'll realize that. Mm. Now, let me ask you, Nate, we, like you said, we've got lots of good questions here. So in, in this one, politics in and of itself seems to always be a constant smear campaign of deficiencies in others' performance or character. I guess that's the nature of the business. That begs a couple questions that relate to a working environment in any company. How do we deal with leadership in our own companies who constantly uh, look at blaming or shaming others for any type of problem? What do you do when you know you're being falsely targeted and feel like one is always on the defensive against these high-conflict personalities? It just never... It seems never-ending because that's how their personality is. Folks in my workbook, work group think at times that we can't do anything right, yet in reality our customers appreciate what we do and we do excellent work. So what would you say to that person? That's a great question, and I think the first important thing to do is remind, remind listeners of the distinction between a high-conflict personality who is very unlikely to change and the rest of the drama that we deal with. I'd like to speak to that second group first. When, when, there's, when there's leadership in our companies constantly looking at blaming and shaming, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the most important first thing we can do is to stay healthy ourselves. And when we talk about how to practice compassionate accountability, we emphasize how critical it is to be open about our motives and our feelings. Even though it feels vulnerable, it's critical. How important it is to bring, bring good solutions to the table and be a resource uh, instead of trying to rescue people. And then finally, how critical it is to have crystal clear boundaries about what we, we are and are not to do, or what, we're, what we are and are not willing to do, and also how willing to make firm commitments to our leaders about how we want to uphold the best aspects of the company. So I think a lot of, this, uh, a lot of the change starts with me. I just finished a training this week where, where the, we kept realizing over and over that um, until, the, until I change the way I look at things, the things I look at will never change. And so change starts here. Um, in terms of being falsely targeted, uh, you know, we could even extend that to gossip and, and these typical smear campaigns. I think that in very rare situations, only in very rare situations does it pay to go on a counteroffensive. In most cases, it's really about getting clear about um, that I'm doing things for the right reasons, that I can live with myself, and that I have a, a, a good conscience about my behavior. And then uh, getting support to resist the rest and knowing that I just can't fix or control other people. Um, and then, of course, in terms of situations where we're dealing with high-conflict personalities, I strongly recommend Bill's book for how do, we, how do we exist in those relationships and stay healthy and stay safe and sometimes we may have to make the difficult decision to move elsewhere so that we don't subject ourselves 
uh, to that negative energy all the time. Great. I, I think mm. those are many, many good good points. Let me let me just add a little mm. bit. You mentioned books, and I do have a book called "It's All Your Faults at Work," uh, co-authored with Georgie De Stefano. And what we put in there is a lot of tips for how to respond if you've become what we call the target of blame. Mm. And so I think I think there's a lot of tips in there if people are interested in that that book. It's all your fault at work. Um, well, let's let's um, let's move along. I know we've got just yeah. a little bit more time, so. Bill, let me ask you this one. Somebody submitted a question. What is the basis for Trump's appeal to his ardent supporters? You mentioned earlier that just just because you support Donald Trump doesn't mean you're nece- that that doesn't have any indication of my own mental health. But why is he so appealing to his supporters? Well, I think there's there's three there's three parts of this, and it's really uh, some of what I really fill out in the Trump bubbles book. The first is it's very powerful to have a group of people who've gone through a recent uh, sense of disenfranchisement, of loss, and the economy in 2008 really laid the groundwork uh, for Trump. It also laid the groundwork for the Tea Party movement and for Sarah Palin, that there's a group of people that felt disenfranchised and didn't really know what, where to go, what to do about it. So you've got a group of people feeling pretty raw, kind of looking for leadership that will point them towards the problem and point them towards the solution. The second part is you've got a very powerful emotional media today. And I I just love the concept that you talk about native drama because I really think we're promoting drama through the emotional media. And when I talk about emotional media, I mean the face and voice media that we have. As we've shifted from newspapers and reading, which is more of kind of a problem-solving brain focus, we're moving more to the emotional brain focus. And facial expressions, tone of voice are much more contagious than the written word. So we're seeing that this sense of being disenfranchised in many ways has been heightened by the face and voice media. And so there's been a ripeness for the third part here, and that's the power of a high-conflict personality. So the appeal, I think, of Trump is that he has simple answers. He wants to emotionally connect with his followers. He's seducing his followers. Most, Most politicians just want to talk about their policies, but he wants to talk about love. And he says at the end of his his rallies a lot of time, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he wants them to love him back. So I think in a way it's a seduction process, just like a con artist seduces uh, a romantic partner, gets their money, gets their credit card and moves on. Uh, I think we're seeing Trump do a seduction, and that makes them extremely loyal, and I think will make them extremely upset with him when he doesn't reciprocate uh, eventually and turns his mind to money and not to all his followers. As a follow-up to that, Bill, you mentioned about how high-conflict personalities, their behavior is very predictable because 
one of the one of the criteria is that they do the same thing over and over in a pretty narrow scope. Um, is the decision if we look at decision making of a nar of kind of this high conflict personality or this person asked of a narcissist, is their decision making predictable? Yes, and let me say why. Um, and I've used the word narcissist. I'm not diagnosing him as having a narcissistic personality disorder. I'm just using a term that's getting more and more commonly used in the media today in regard to Trump. Uh, and so the person has asked this question uh, using that term. The more, the more um, extreme a personality is, the more narrow and repeating it is. So the decision-making of a high-conflict person is pretty much in a narrow range and tends towards the all-or-nothing solutions. Um, I would suggest that this is a decision-making style or leadership style that's very archaic, that it's part of our human nature going back uh, thousands of years, and that in the way old days before we had writing and reading and, and knew about history, people followed charismatic leaders because that's all they had. You know, they look big and strong, and so we follow that person. But their decisions were very um, uh, simple mm. because in the old days you had to be simple. We now live in a very modern, complicated world. We cannot go with all-or-nothing decisions. Everything is a little more nuanced, a little more refined. We have the power to blow up the world. Um, yeah. And we need to be reserved in how we use that power. So that's that's yeah. a big concern. Thank you. Um, let me ask you, Nate, then, another question that we've got is, how can people put Trump and Clinton in the same category regarding service and lies when Clinton has been in public service and advocating for children and women for the last 30 years, and Trump is in the business of advocating for himself that entire time? It's a great question, and I think um, supporters of Clinton and supporters of Trump look at, look at the other side and are just mystified and flabbergasted how anyone could support the opponent. And I think what that, what that reveals is that followers of each one are using very different filters and very different bases for their support. And you described maybe some of what Trump's appeal is to his supporters. And I think the reasons that Trump supporters really like Trump are different than the reasons why Clinton supporters, Clinton supporters like her. And so if we try to apply the same criteria across the aisle, we're very mystified. Um, an example, if we look at, let's, let's say, public service and advocacy for the underserved should be the criteria for who serves in office. Well, obviously, if we use that criteria, then, then Clinton should win. But if we look at, you know, who's tough, who can make the call, who's got the energy and the charisma, then obviously Trump should be the president. So it really has to do with applying different filters um, across the boards when people aren't making the decisions for the same reason. Yeah, great. I, I think I think you're right. And part of what happens is 
is the community people come from, like their political party, has already primed them for the message that their candidate's giving them. And so it just it just fits in right away. Um, it's it's yeah. just fascinating, the political impact yeah. of these opinions, etc. Well, I think that when, when, in the last debate, when each one of them was asked to say something nice about the other one, Trump's compliment of Clinton couldn't have been more dead on to what she values and what her followers value, which is her work ethic. And regardless of whether she's lied or whether regardless of a lot of the things you can criticize her for, it's very difficult to disagree that she's a hard worker. I think if Clinton would have wanted to do the same favor for Trump, she would have recognized his ability to make a call, um, take the heat, um, step into the fire, and be able to come out swinging. I think that's the thing that Trump probably values the most about himself and what his followers value about him. But instead, she projected what she would appreciate onto him, which is his, his being able to raise good children that are successful and work hard. A very interesting projection there. And I think it's interesting you use the word projection because I think a lot of people don't think about that. That person puts their characteristics onto the other person. Mm. And I, I always know in legal disputes when someone says the other person's doing X, Y, Z, I know I always have to look at the theory that the person saying that may also be doing X, Y, Z or the only person doing X, Y, Z. So projection... I think you don't understand politics, especially this year, if you don't understand projections. That's a great point. Bill, I want to ask you a question here that is was asked in several different ways by several people. And this is a practical, interpersonal uh, question. How do you redirect people that interrupt and are giving inaccurate narratives all the time? And we've seen this by the politicians that are constantly trying to fact check and correct and interrupt each other. What about when that happens in day-to-day in -day interactions? Well, this, this really leads into a method we developed uh, with High Conflict Institute that we call the BIF response. It's B-I-F-F, brief, informative, friendly, and firm. And the idea is just to be brief and saying, here's the accurate information, not defensive, not judgmental, not criticizing, just here's the accurate information. And we especially teach this with emails and responding to hostile emails or misinformation. And we're finding a lot of success with it. People feel good about how they write a BIF response, that they didn't get down in the mud with the person that was, you know, interrupting or accusing. While we designed it primarily for writing, it also can be done in person. Just a brief thing, here's some information you may not have, do it with a friendly tone and firm, meaning it ends the hostility, it ends the back and forth, it doesn't feed it. In many ways, this, this kills drama, and uh, in many ways what we see is people are getting drawn towards being more dramatic even in the workplace, because they hear all of this as part of the culture. So BIF responses, I think, are a good way to just redirect them rather than accept what's being said. And I want to mention that we have a book called BIF uh, that teaches about this, and I'll mention our website at the end. Uh, but great questions. 
Well, we are we are right at about an hour, and I know that listeners uh, in today's in today's world, time is very very precious, and so we appreciate uh, the time that you've given to listen. Would like to give an opportunity. Each of us will make a few very brief closing comments and share a little bit about how you can get in touch with us if you'd like to learn more about what we do um, or or purchase our books. And uh, would like to start with you, Bill. What what last closing comments would you or takeaways would you like to share? Well, I think it's important for people to realize that there are some people with high-conflict personalities out there. I estimate about 10 to 15 percent of the population, and this is based on research about personality disorders, which are about 15 percent of the population, even though there's not a complete overlap. But when you're dealing with someone like this, you've got to shift your approach and be more careful, and that's a lot of what our books are about, and not get sucked into the drama as, as Nate talks about. Um, so in terms of our, our resources, uh, the best is to go to our website, which is highconflictinstitute.com. That's one long word, highconflictinstitute.com. And we have books there, including Trump Bubbles about politics, including It's All Your Fault at Work, about the workplace, including BIF, Quick Responses to High-Conflict People, which you can use in relationships, uh, going through divorce, you can use that in the workplace with neighbors, etc. We have uh, video training, uh, for example, how to do BIF responses, we've got a video on that. And we also have a lot of uh, free articles so we encourage people to go to highconflictinstitute.com. And Nate, why don't you give some closing thoughts on how to get your information and training? Thank you. Well, it's uh, one of the questions that I ask my coaching clients a lot, and it, it certainly is, a, is appropriate here, is this question about do we want to be right or do we want to be effective? And it certainly is a challenge to know what is the motive in a lot of, of the activity going on during this election. I don't. I guess I'm guessing no matter who gets elected, our work will not be done, Bill. And uh, the, the need <laughs> for, for sure. the need for great tools to deal with conflict is getting more and more important because our as a human race, not only are we more and more connected than ever before, but we have more and more capability to destroy ourselves. Um, and so. Uh, definitely handling conflict well is a key. Uh, I've mentioned my two books, Beyond Drama, and my newest one, uh, Conflict Without Casualties. Also, I uh, would invite people to visit our website, nextelement.com. And uh, there you can follow my blog, where I publish two articles a week on leadership and life with compassionate accountability. And you can learn more about the various models and trainings that we do to help companies learn how to use conflict in healthy ways and to communicate with diverse audiences uh, to get to our goals quicker and more effectively. I'm... Last words, Excellent. Bill? <laughs> I guess we can both close. I've really enjoyed doing this with you, Nate, and look forward to future contacts. Thank you so much, Bill. Great to have you here. And again, this is Nate Regeer with Next Element signing off and wishing all of you a drama-free day and a good weekend.